Hello, I'm Clara White. And I'm Kyle Willoughby. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today we are talking about Jiral of Joyri. Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jiral? I will. Thank you, Claire. Uh, Jiral of Joyri is a fictional character created by American writer C.L. Moore, who appeared in a series of sword and sorcery stories published first in the pulp horror fantasy magazine Weird Tales. Jiral is the proud, tough, arrogant, and beautiful ruler of her own domain somewhere in medieval France. Now, Catherine Lucille Moore, who is the author of Jiral of Jory and the creator, was an American science fiction and fantasy writer who first came to prominence in the 1930s writing as C.L. Moore. She was among the first woman or she was among the first women to write in the science fiction and fantasy genres. Now, Kyle is going to do the history of Jiral of Joyry and Kyle, what is that? Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about women writing through the ages, too, specifically um, women who wrote things that were maybe considered kind of trashy and pulpy, but turn out to have more themes and are, are maybe more respected in hindsight than they were at the time. Fantastic. And I'm going to talk about CL Moore and a little bit about pulp magazines and um, Weird Tales, which is the magazine that this story was published in. Super excited to hear about Weird Tales, honestly. Yeah. There's, a, there's a, lot of, a lot of great authors contributed to that magazine. So, Kyle, why don't you take us away? I will. As the intro explained, Gerald of Joyry and C.L. Moore got their start in the pulp publishing boom of the 1930s. Now, Gerald is really the first female sword and sorcery hero, and Moore was truly a trailblazer for women writing in the genre. And even though the pulpy serialized adventures of Jiral and other pulp fiction heroes are often relegated to kind of, quote, low art, at least they certainly were at the time, C.L. Moore and others were really pushing the boundaries of the time in their writing. Um, but I want to pull back, as we so often do in this podcast, <laughs> and talk about some of the famous writers before C.L. Moore, whose tradition I think Moore really follows in. So we're going way back, back in time, to arguably the first science fiction author and story. You Mary know her. Shelley? You love her. No, not Mary oh. Shelley. <laughs> Margaret Cavendish, the oh. Duchess of Newcastle. Yes, yes, yes. I Man, know. you had me going. I know. Well, I, I, everyone probably thought I was going to say Mary Shelley. And uh, no, for once on this podcast, we will not be talking about <laughs> Mary Shelley or Frankenstein. I swear to God, if we had to take a shot every time one of us mentioned Shelley or Frankenstein... Uh, we'd both be dead from alcohol poisoning because <laughs> we talk about her a lot. We do. Well, she's pretty cool. <laughs> she is pretty cool. But no, the other arguable progenitor of the fantasy sci-fi genre, Margaret Cavendish, is just as interesting and fascinating a person to look at. Uh, she deserves further research, but for now I just want to focus on her fictional work, her time period, and her intent as an author. Okay. Margaret Cavendish was a British aristocrat from the 1600s. She was a very accomplished writer and one of the first women to gain notoriety through writing, philosophy, and science. Cavendish was, bore, was bored easily, smart, curious, and rich. <laughs> um, she also, being an aristocrat with no children, had an abundance of free time and decided she would like to spend it studying philosophy, the natural world, and writing. That's not a bad use of free time. No, I mean, if you're rich and you don't have to work and you've got all the money, you don't have kids, why not? Uh, she also hung out in the brainiest circles of her day. She was friends with the philosopher Rene Descartes, um, and she was friends with Thomas Hobbes. Her husband, William Cavendish, was also a famous writer and naturalist. So 
Cavendish, Margaret Cavendish, wrote a lot about natural philosophy and experimental philosophy, but it was her story, The Blazing World, which was a companion piece to a larger work on ex- experimental philosophy called Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy. We've talked about that on this podcast before. We have mentioned it before, but mostly when we talk about The Roots of Sci-Fi, we talk about Shelley. Um, and I think uh, Margaret Cavendish kind of falls more in line with C.L. Moore. Uh, I mean, they both they both were really talented writers and wrote about some heady stuff, but uh, the, the fantastical nature of Cavendish's story, which we're going to talk about, feels more like pulp. So in this story, which is called The Blazing World, Cavendish explored such issues as science, gender, and power. It also examined the relationship between imagination versus reason and philosophy versus fiction. Um, And Cavendish wrote herself into this book, which detailed a fictional new world, not just a new continent, but an entirely separate world and its empress. And she remarked in her epilogue to the reader that she herself was empress of the philosophical world. Um, In fact, in Cavendish's epistle to the reader, she remarked that in much the same way as there was a Charles I, she would be considered Margaret I. So the blazing world was full of things that would be featured in future pulp stories, such as fishmen, birdmen, <laughs> submarines, and people, as well as adventure and travel. The, the plot of the story is that a woman is, is kind of taken to be someone's wife, but she escapes and she gets transported to this whole other alternate reality. Isn't it through the North Pole? It's through the North yes. Pole, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's really outlandish and adventurous, but it was a companion piece to this larger philosophical work that she was, she was mm-hmm. writing on, experimental philosophy. It does sound like a pulp story. But it does, yeah. Now, Cavendish was definitely a more highbrow writer, but she had a really interesting motivation on why she wrote. She published numerous poems and prose and epistles full of philosophical musings. They would often contain dialogue and conversation between things like a woodcutter and an oak tree, or the earth and darkness, or mirth and despair. And her epistles were often letters of defense and intent about what she wrote and being a woman writing philosophy. She straight up says in her epistles that she is writing to become famous. <laughs> Cavendish stated that she was not concerned that the best people like her writing as long as many people did. <laughs> Which feels like pulp. Even yeah. though she wasn't writing pulp, she was writing philosophy and these kind of like these these little stories about, you know, musings on mirth versus despair right. and But it's not about the prestige. It's about the fame. It's about the fame. She wants the fame. She didn't need the money. She's the Kardashian of her time. (laughs) She's also the earliest person I've read to use the phrase, better to ask forgiveness than ask permission. And I don't know, but I wonder if it it came from her. Oh. And it was in response to people who were critical of her writing as a woman. She was like, no, I'm not. They were like, who, who gave you permission to do this? And she would say... I've learned that it's better to, you know, ask forgiveness than ask permission in my, you know, in, in my day of oh, that's writing. that's great. And I, yeah, I, I, it, this was in like 1660, so I wonder if that's the first time that that phrase was used. Um, so Cavendish was truly a trailblazer, but definitely had critics in her day and, uh, and after. And it is only more recently that she has really been recognized as the great mind and writer that she was. And that her crazy story, because I've read parts of it, and it seems bonkers. The Blazing World was more respected and uh, put down less as a silly imaginative fiction. People are look at it more now as, right. as you know, uh, her, her talking about what women can and can't do. You know, she had to go to another world to achieve all the things that the character mm. c- achieves. And there's creatures there that have no gender. It's so interesting because if critics then 
we're going to say male critics probably, yes. buried it and said it was trash at the time. You can imagine how that would stick. Yeah, yeah. And, it's and like, that with this whole feminist movement happening, happening in the 21st century, that now it's starting to get some respect. Yeah, exactly. But you have to go back and find it and decide that it's not trash. And that's really, that leads really in, it leads well into what I'm going to talk about next. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a couple hundred years and talk a little bit about another woman who wrote fantastical stories that were underappreciated and a little closer to pulp, and that is Louisa May Alcott. (laughs) So Claire knows who Louisa May Alcott is. Uh, But for you guys, Alcott was an author in the 1800s who was most famous for writing one of the considered, quote, great American novels, Little Women. It's a great novel. And that was in 1868. And most people have at least heard the name Little Women, and a lot of people have probably seen the film adaptation that starred Winona Ryder, Susan Sarandon, and Christian Bale. But fewer people, I think, are aware of Alcott's other writings, which were under the pen name A.M. Barnard. I wasn't aware of them until you told me about it. So, you see, Little Women is considered this very prim and proper coming-of-age story for girls in the 1870s. Um, and where it does have some feminist themes, it is very much a product of, product of its time and doesn't really rock the boat that much, so to speak. All the girls live a very loving life, and they all eventually quit pursuing their hobbies to get married and have families. The funny thing about Little Women and the picture-perfect story that it shows is that it's very different from Alcott's life and very different from what she really enjoyed writing. Alcott has gone down saying that Little Women was her least favorite thing she ever wrote, and the only reason she wrote it was because her publisher wanted a book for young girls thinking it would sell well. And it did. It did. Alcott considered her own story moral pap for the young, in quotes, instead <laughs> of writing Little Women that I plot away, though I don't enjoy this kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> yes. It's so good, too. One of the most beloved books of our time. She's like, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad and I hate it and I don't like writing that sort of stuff. Now, what Alcott truly loved writing was sensationalist fiction, lurid tales of deception and wit and sometimes even horror. Um, And these stories were published in a serial format in newsletters and weekly publications in New England. And she seems to have enjoyed the lurid style. And she says, quote, What is lurid? uh, You know, a little, I don't want to say sexy, but, you know, a little dark, a little dangerous. Um, the main character maybe is is not a, a the perfect example of like prim and proper. Eighteen hundred sexy. Eighteen hundred sexy, exactly. <laughs> but she thought that this lurid style uh, was more suited to her natural ambition and the money she earned from writing these kind of dangerous, sexy stories. Lurid stories. These lurid stories was also crucial. She said, "Quote." I can't afford to starve on praise when sensation stories are written in half the time and keep the family cozy. Oh, wow. Just like Cavendish. (laughs) Just like Cavendish. She's like, whatever. These so-called lurid stories were actually pushing a lot more boundaries at the time than Little Women did also. Uh, Alcott's sensationalist tales often featured young women or older women protagonists going off on adventures or scheming and cleverly winning fortunes from the foolish men around them. (laughs) And the nom de plume A.M. Barnard was Alcott's secret for many years. It was only really discovered by the public in the 1960s with the unearthing of some old letters of hers that she wrote under a fake name and that all these A.M. Barnard stories were written by 
Alcott. Whoa. Wait, so were they popular at the time? They were popular at the time. That's how she made most of her money until she wrote Little Women. Because I was going to say, Little Women, I know, was profitable. Yeah, it was, it was. Little Women was a huge success. But she, even after she wrote Little Women, she kept writing these sensational stories because she liked writing them more. That's wonderful. <laughs> so these sensational, not pulp, but almost serial stories pushed more boundaries than the classic American coming-of-age story and were more revered by their author. She thought Little Women was trash, and she much preferred... (laughs) She much preferred her stories about, you know, this old actress who pretends to be a young woman who then tricks an estate in England out of all their money. I mean, I love Little Women, but that does sound like a great story. Um, And that brings me to more in the pulp fictions of the early 20th century. Sure, there were a lot of pulps that featured cowboys and evil green aliens that have stolen a damsel and the brave space hero who has to go get her back. But they also feature characters like Moore's uh, Gerald of Joyry, a powerful and accomplished woman who you definitely do not want to mess with. And I'm starting to recognize that the paperback revolution in the early 1900s and the ability to publish pretty much anything with an audience really pushed the social boundaries more than, say, something like The Great Gatsby, which was written around the same time, that's a novel that's still celebrated, but that treaded much safer waters than Jarell of Joyry, which was the first time ever that a female protagonist was not some damsel or some lady-in-waiting, but was this powerful ruler of this castle and was a, a straight badass and would chop your head off if you talked mm-hmm. to her wrong. Who is it, Daisy in The Great Gatsby? It's Daisy yeah. in The Great Gatsby. She's awful! <laughs> or another great pulp story, I think, that that really exemplifies what was going on in the pulp industry in the 30s and 40s was The Girls in 3B, which was a pulp novel written by Velma Young about women rebelling against domesticity and pursuing same-sex relationships. And a lot of this stuff was and still is considered today snuff and trash, but if you look at the world we live in now, they seem more prophetic. Uh, we live in a world of same-sex relationships and a growing roster of badass female adventurers and heroes. And these are all things that have been explored before in what is largely considered lowbrow literature. Oh, and science fiction. And science fiction. What could it be like? Exactly. So that's my segment on the pulps and, that was and kind so of the... so interesting. The, yeah. See that Louisa more, May Alicott I know. stuff is fascinating. And I feel like C.L. Moore really does follow... In, like, and Jirel of Joy really does follow in those same footsteps of like, oh, this is just dumb pulp. But actually, it's pushing a lot of boundaries for yeah, its day, especially. and it's not dumb. And um, it's not We can dumb. talk about that more. Yeah. But and yeah, we'll go into that. I'm going to talk more about C.L. Moore. Your segment kind of leads me perfectly to her. Awesome. So Catherine Lucille Moore was born in 1911 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, She was ill a lot as a child and kept out of school, so she had to find other ways to keep herself entertained. She loved Greek mythology, the Oz books, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. She went to Indiana University in 1929 and wrote for the student-run magazine. But the Great Depression hit, so she dropped out of school and started working as a secretary at a bank in Indianapolis. Now... This is where she really started writing, and she would stay at the bank after hours and write from the balcony in the bank because she said she liked writing where she had a good view. (laughs) And she would submit these stories that she wrote to magazines. She made her first sale in 1933 when she sold her first story, Chamblow, to Weird Tales magazine. And Chamblow is an adventurer story, kind of in the foot—or the pre— 
precursor to Indiana Jones. Oh, cool. Um, and rumor is, and I read this multiple places, that the editor of Weird Tales magazine, Fransworth Wright, closed Weird Tales offices the day he read Chamblot in celebration because he knew that this was good stuff. That's amazing. Um, she claims she wrote under C.L. Moore to hide her writing from the bank, not to hide that she was a woman. Really? That's what she says. Yes. And she continued to write stories about Chamblot's main character, Northwest Smith, who was the Indiana Jones-type character <laughs> who dealt with more horror fantasy. Yeah. Northwest Smith. Yes. Such a great name. It is a great name. <laughs> In October 1934, she introduced... Girl of Joyry, the story of the black, and the story the black gods kiss, and this also came out in Weird Tales. Now her writing garnered a lot of attention, and she was praised by notable figures in the sci-fi fantasy world, including H.P. Lovecraft, who was the darling of Weird Tales. That's really interesting because H.P. Lovecraft was such a curmudgeonly cranky dude. I can't imagine him praising anyone. So that's pretty high mm-hmm. that he praised. Uh, yeah, uh, more. she. And Astounding Science Fiction, which was kind of the competitor to Weird Tales, asked Moore to write for them. And she would actually write for them for the rest of the 30s as well. Oh, wow. Got poached. Yeah. I think she was writing for both. Yeah. Now, she met the writer, Henry Nutter, who had also been published in Weird Tales, when he wrote to her saying that he was a fan, but he didn't know that she was a woman. They met. He found out she was a woman. And they ended up getting married in 1940. And Moore stopped writing under her name, and they started collaborating on everything. They published under the pseudonyms C.H. Little, Lewis Paget, and Lawrence O'Donnell. And apparently they worked so well together that they claimed that they could never take credit for certain parts of each story, that it was just so intertwined, and it was just so both their worlds. That's really cool to find someone on that same wavelength as you, especially for something that can be so personal as writing. Mm -hmm. And who wants to write the science fiction that you're writing. Yeah. Their story, Vintage Season, uh, which was published in Astounding Science Fiction, and it was later put in the second volume of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 1973. Now, this was an anthology um, which the Science Fiction Writers of America voted to be the best science fiction short stories that predated the nebulas. Oh, cool. Her husband died of a heart attack in 1958, and Moore stopped writing science fiction. She wrote instead for TV, uh, Sugarfoot, Maverick, and 77 Sunset Strip are some of the more notable shows that she worked on, and she taught at USC. She remarried in 1963 to Thomas Reggie and stopped writing. I don't know if the two were correlated. I couldn't find any information that said that it was. Hmm. She continued to receive awards from the science fiction community after she had retired, the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award from the World Fantasy Convention and the Gandalf Grand Master Award, sponsored by the Swordsman and Sorcerers Guild of America, are that, just some of the awards that, that she is, got. I don't know anything about that award, but I'm pretty sure it's you, a very prestigious award. I know you won it. I definitely won it. She passed away in 1987 after showing early signs of Alzheimer's. Posthumously, she was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. So... While not the most recognized in her genre, she didn't do horribly. And I want to kind of talk about pulp magazines because we've been mentioning them throughout the podcast and exactly what they are. We did an episode that went into them a little deeper early on when we Very started Very early podcast. on. Well, this yeah. is a little recap because yeah. I couldn't remember it. Yeah. So pulp magazines got their name from the cheap pulp paper they were printed on. The precursors of the pulp magazine 
were the slick magazines of the 1880s and 1890s. And they're called slip ma- slick magazines because they are printed on slick paper. And they featured some of the best writers and illustrators of the day. Now, slick paper, I don't know if you can tell by the name. Very slick. Very slick. It was too expensive to keep up. It would cost about 50 cents to buy an issue of a slick paper magazine. And in the 1880s, 1890s, it's pretty pricey. Yeah, that's a lot of money. So to keep publishing costs down, uh, publishers started using cheaper paper or pulp paper. And they also started using less popular artists and less popular writers. Also keeps costs down. Now, what helped the magazines grow in popularity was using unknown writers to create serialized, unconventional stories where a new chapter would be dropped every week. Um, These magazines were usually about 128 pages long. Actually, exactly 128 pages long. And they started out being family-friendly, but over time, they got racier and racier. And in my head, when I was reading this, I was thinking, just like TV, started out family-friendly. Look at HBO now. (laughs) And they were aimed at more mature audiences. Um, Pulps came in every genre and were most popular during the 1930s. During the Great Depression, they were an affordable escape, a way people could get away from the sadness of the Great Depression. They were known for their covers, uh, which were always printed on high-quality paper and usually featured something, you know, scandalous or titillating. Yeah. Yeah. So now that we know what a pulp magazine is, let's talk about the pulp magazine that we're focusing on today, and that's Weird Tales. Yeah, Weird Tales. Now, there were other magazines that had published fantasy, horror, and science fiction, but Weird Tales was the first pulp to publish exclusively fantasy, horror, and science fiction in the pulp market. It was published by Rural Publications Incorporated, which was founded by Jacob Clark Henenberger with J.M. Lanzinger, with the intention of cashing in on the pulp fiction market. Now, the company published two magazines, Real Detective Tales and Mystery Stories and Weird Tales. Henenberger was a fan of early Edgar Allan Poe stories and wanted to have a magazine for stories that didn't quite fit into a mold. He had talked to other authors, and they had mentioned wanting to publish bizarre stories that didn't fit in anywhere else. And this is a quote from him. I must confess that the main motive in establishing weird tales was to give the writer free reign to express his innermost feelings in a manner benefiting great literature. And that's from a Kirkus Reviews article, The Troubled History of Weird Tales by Andrew Liptick. The first issue appeared in March 1923 and was edited by Edwin Bain. In the first year, uh, the magazine featured stories from H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe. It gained a core audience, but it wasn't hugely popular, and a year in had run up a large amount of debt. So Hindenberger fired Bain and tried to get H.P. Lovecraft to become the editor of Weird Tales. Lovecraft, even though he received great offers, turned it down. Um, he didn't want to move to Chicago. Lovecraft, when you read about him, he was a miserable man. He, he just—he loved weird tales. He, lo- he did I'm sure love he weird did, tales. Because they published his weird stories. Well, when he found them, he submitted a bunch <laughs> yeah. to them right away. Yeah. It was like, oh, this is my thing. So because H.P. Lovecraft didn't take it, Bain's assistant, Fransworth Wright, became the new editor. By the way, I'm loving all of these names. These, yes, these 1930s like 1900s. names. They're great. Ransworth Wright, captain of the pulp industry. And he is really credited with making weird tales what it became. Even weirder. He brought in a whole new pool of talent, Seabury Quinn, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert S. Carr, Edmund Hamilton, 
the playwright, Tennessee Williams, Robert E. Howard, who wrote Conan. Conan the Barbarian. And our girl, C.L. Moore. Yay! He hired Margaret Brundage as the primary artist whose covers helped it stand out on the racks. And by stand out, I mean they were pretty sexy. Yeah. And it helped uh, Weird Tales compete with other sci-fi and fantasy pulps that had started coming out. Now, Weird Tales, I thought it was a really popular magazine back in the day. It never really was. And in the 30s, it continued to struggle, um, especially with H.P. Lovecraft dying and one of their other most popular authors, Bran Mac Howard, killing himself. Oh, wow. In 1939, Hindenburger sold the magazine to William J. Delancey, who began to cut down the budget allotted to the magazine and ordered the covers to be less racy. What? Who would want less racy covers? <laughs> William J. Delancey, that's who. Prude. Over the course of the 40s, the magazine sales started dropping even more. Now, a lot of that is blamed on budget cuts, which resulted in lower pay rates for authors, making them less competitive with competing magazines for the best authors, and a shorter page count to make printing cheaper. Some blamed it on the new editor, Dorothy McElworth, who didn't have Wright's outlandish taste. Some blamed it on the toned-down covers. <laughs> <laughs> but... Honestly, a lot of the fault with the magazine's decline was because pulps were becoming less popular. First of all, the paper shortage during World War II made it much more expensive to publish pulp magazines. And after the war, there was a rise in paperback novels, comics, TV, and movies, which left less room on the rack for for the pulp market. The last issue of Weird Tales was released in 1954. And there have been uh, many attempts to revive Weird Tales. I think it's such a cool concept that people always want to try it, but it's never been really popular and it's never gained a ton of traction. But at the end of the day, despite not having a huge commercial success, Weird Tales managed to expand literary landscape and help science fiction, fantasy, and horror find a place in mainstream American culture. And it's something that I like. I, we encounter in our research a lot. You yeah, know, it was we're looking super up old influential. Like, this person was in Weird Tales, and this person was in Weird Tales. And as a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan, and reading about him and all that he published there, it does make it seem like it was bigger than I guess it was at the time. Yeah, I was surprised that it wasn't as popular as it. I thought it was, but yeah. especially because we talk about it all the time on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. Well, Claire, that segment was wonderful. It was super interesting. I love hearing about Weird Tales. Thanks, Kyle. Weird Tales is very interesting. It is. It's something I've always been curious about. Uh, Now we're going to switch over to our opinions. And our first question is, you know, we paired this with Gerald of Joyery. We paired with Outlander. It's kind of a precursor to Outlander. Kind of a precursor to Outlander, we think. I think it is. I think it is, too, actually. I think there's a couple different angles that we can approach this. So I think your segment especially will go very well with the Outlander um, episode because when I – I was the one who made this pairing. Let me yes. take full responsibility yes. for it. And what appealed to me about Outlander and doing a whole podcast researching Outlander was because it is a fantasy story written by a female with a female protagonist. Yeah. And I've heard it has its flaws and I'm reading it right now and it, it does have its flaws. But I find that so unique in the fantasy sci-fi realm. Now, it's becoming more prevalent now. But I was looking back at what is the first fantasy story with a female protagonist written by a female. Yeah. Now, Margaret Cavendish could have worked too. But to me, that was a little bit too, too might not yeah, be fantasy, a little bit too philosophical. Yeah. And besides that, 
Jural uh, of Jory. I've read it Jural in my head while yeah. I was reading it, and yeah. it's been really hard to get out. But some professor who we watched on YouTube called it Jural. Yeah. Jural of Jory was the first Female? piece of work yeah. that came up, like the earliest piece of work beside Margaret Cavendish as being a female fantasy character written by a female author. I also think that they might pair well from the idea of what's considered lowbrow or pulpy things that do kind of push a boundary mm-hmm. with Outlander. Because Outlander is a historical fiction, but it's also, it's kind of wearing the clothes of a dirty romance novel at times. Right. So I think like that com- combined together, you know, romance novels often looked at as this kind of low art um, pushed in with this historical fiction, which which uh, I'm not all the time, but is often considered a little bit more highbrow, a lot of research. I'm Curious to see, you know, what that yields. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm very excited to do some research and compare, you know, the writing styles of the yeah. two and the, you know, themes that go in both of them, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> our, our second questionable pairing. Um, so with uh, Gerald of Joyry, what didn't we like? What did we like? Did you enjoy it first, I guess? Yeah, I really did. Now, it got better and better because we downloaded the three dollar kindle version three dollars three dollars people for yeah, the uh, e-book. definitely <laughs> worth the three dollars for the ebook um and i thought that the stories got better and better as they went on it, um but yeah i really i think i could tell i think i can tell i could tell that it was written by a woman yes same and while Gerald is very beautiful and obviously very attractive to men she is so independent and so driven not to make men fall in love with her. Yeah. And it was so wonderful yeah. to read that, especially in um, a style that is so old-fashioned because it is a more old-fashioned tone it, yeah, it's and a, way of phrasing. And, it's a running through the trenches also nonstop action mm-hmm. pulp adventure. Yes. It definitely is. But you can read – it does read like it was written by a woman in a that, – I mean that in a really good way. Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed the hell out of it. I was very skeptical about this whole, <laughs> about these ladies in fantasy. No, <laughs> but but about, know. you know, reading Outlander in this old pulp magazine story. And I picked up Gerald of Jewelry and my goodness, was it a fun time. You're welcome. Thank you, Claire. Yeah, this, it was very reminiscent to me of H.P. Lovecraft. So hearing him praise C.L. Moore, I was, it made sense. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot, it's dark. I mean, it's pulpy and action-y, but it's serious and dark, There too. was more horror in it than I thought there was going yes, to be. Yes, I love the horror. <laughs> the terror. <laughs> and she is a very brave woman. She definitely is. Um, so I think, I, I, who would you recommend this to, Claire? I would recommend it to... People who enjoy reading fantasy. Now, I'm not going to say it's the best fantasy I've ever read. It certainly isn't. But I think as a precursor to a lot of fantasy and as a precursor to a lot of strong female characters in fantasy, it's a great thing to read. Yeah, I agree. It reads really well. Anyone who likes Conan the Barbarian or Xena Warrior Princess would love this, I think. Also, as a teenager, my favorite books. Well, some of my favorite books were the Alana books by Tamora Pierce. It's a YA fantasy novel about okay. a girl who disguises herself as a man to become a knight, and she's redheaded too. Oh, wow. So while reading this, I was wondering if Tamora Pierce was actually explicitly influenced by Gerald of Jory. Yeah, and Jory. Moore. Yeah. That's, there's a very good chance. So it was a funny thing of one of my favorite things ever. I mean, 
Atlanta doesn't deal with the horror aspects, and yeah. it's also YA, so yeah. in a sense, it's, it's actually less graphic. Yeah. Um, but it was really fun to read that and feel that it was a direct descendant of, or precursor, precursor of yeah. Atlanta. Yeah. That's super cool. One thing, I mean, this is a little bit away from what we're talking about with did we enjoy it and who it goes, who should read it. But when you mentioned that C.L. Moore worked in the 30s as a uh, in a bank. Mm. I, I was reading about pulp magazines in the 30s written by women and one that I uh, the name escapes me but it was kind of channeling the anxieties of men in the 30s that women were also competing in the workforce about a woman who works at a bank mm. who makes more than her husband and the husband doesn't want to get married to her until he can support the family Ooh, even though she like, could support them that if she sounds worked. like a depression story yeah yeah so but I, yeah, Gerald of Jewelry, I really recommend to anyone who is curious yeah. about fantasy or who likes fantasy. Definitely. And we are going to be back next week or two, two weeks. weeks with our episode about Outlander. Yes, and how it pairs yeah. with uh, CL Moore. I'm excited. Me too. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm Kyle Willoughby. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Exciting news. Next week, January 19th and 20th, we will have a booth at PodCon. In Seattle. In Seattle. So if you are attending PodCon, please stop by. We would love to chat with you. Or if you are in Seattle and want to get a beer or just hang out and get coffee, shoot us a message through any of the platforms I'm going to mention below. We are fun to get beers with that's and what coffee our, too. That's what our moms say. <laughs> um, we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at along with Claire. That is C-L-A-I-R-E. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. And you can find our producer James at James Bowie Jr. That's James Bowie, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R on Twitter. You can learn more about Gerald of Joyry on our Facebook page where we'll be posting some of our show notes. Yes, a lot of great articles on uh, Al Scott hating oh, little please, women. please, I can't wait to read those. <laughs> our producer, who you might find in a hellish cavern below a castle in medieval France, is James Bowie. Our logo is done by the Patty Highland, who would inevitably be compared to Jurel. There's she, no way she couldn't she be. She kind of is Jurel of Joyry. Yeah. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who wishes they'd bring those pulp covers back. He does. He he loves some salacious art. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you at PodCon or in two weeks. <laughs>